Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. So we are on part two of the Civil War history and into Reconstruction. So last week we went over the first half of the Civil War, which was 1861 to 1863 is where we stopped January 1st of 1863. Um, and that is when the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. So today we're going from 1863 to the end of the war in 1865. And then we talk a little bit kind of high level about how the United States was able to be reconstructed after the war, because as you might guess, that is a huge feat to, after a civil war happens to then reconstruct the nation in a proactive, like healthy way to make sure that we're all back on the same page. So that was quite the process to reconstruct and we'll go over that whole um, time period. So let's get into the Civil War Part 2. Okay, let's get right into this history here. So in 1862, uh, Abraham Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, but it didn't go into effect until January 1st of 1863. Now, theoretically, it freed about 4 million slaves, but since there was a civil war going on and there was resistance from the South to freeing their slaves, a lot of them weren't actually freed at that time. So what would happen is that any Union soldier or cavalry that would go down... Um, and fight and liberate an area, they would go and free the slaves in that area that they were fighting in. So also on January 1st, 1963 was the Battle of Stones River. It was a much needed Union victory that really boosted morale. By spring of 1863, the Union went on the offensive and there was a surprise attack by Lee on May 1st. So after that, the Union men pulled back to Chancellorville, and the Confederates actually won a very big battle in Chancellorville there, but it was super costly. Many, many people died, and there were just a ton of casualties, so even though the Confederates technically won, it was pretty costly to them. After that, Lee launched another invasion in the North, so, you know, as we're seeing the North and South fighting, each one is trying to gain ground. So Lee launched an invasion of the North in June of that same year and attacked Union forces commanded by General Meade on July 1st. That was near Gettysburg in Southern Pennsylvania. And over three days, there was very fierce fighting. It was very, again, lots of casualties. The Confederates were unable to push through the Union Center and suffered, ca suffered casualties of close to 60%. So imagine going into the battle with all the men and 60% of the men die on your side. Like that is, I don't know. I always kind of read the textbooks of the Civil War and Revolutionary War and things like that. And it's easy to like skim over the number of people that died. But to imagine yourself in a battle where 60% of the, the men around you died is crazy and very sad that this war lasted four years. Um, okay, so let's see. It says, yeah, so they suffered casualties of 60%. Okay, Meade did not end up counterattacking 
and Lee's remaining forces were able to escape into Virginia, but that marked the last invasion of the North. And after that, I mean, th that was kind of like after the turning point of the war. So the North is really starting to get a lot of momentum. The South is not going to invade the North again. They keep having these like very decisive key losses. Okay, July of 1863, the Union forces under Grant take Vicksburg, which again is like the big turning point of the war. This is how it's, you know, we kind of know it's starting to ramp down a little bit. Um, the Confederates win at Chickamauga Creek in Georgia, just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee. That was in September. And after that, Lincoln expanded Grant's command, and he led a reinforced federal army um, to victory in the Battle of Chattanooga. So we see some Confederate wins still, but they tend to be smaller, and they're answered a lot by Union victories. So Grant is expanding in his command. He's shown to be a really, really good military leader. He's had definitely multiple wins under his belt. And so in March 1864, Lincoln actually puts Grant in supreme command of the Union armies, replacing Halleck. So big move, Grant is now the head person in charge of the entire military. Um, William Tecumseh Sherman was in control of the Western part since it was like split into the Western territories and the main part that Grant was in charge of. And then Grant started leading the Army of the Potomac towards Lee's troops in Northern Virginia. Now, a series of battles took place in pretty quick succession here. So there was the Battle of Wilderness, that was in May, the Battle at Spotsylvania in May. There was um, a battle at Cold Harbor in June, and then there was a full battle at the Key Rail Center of Petersburg, also in June. So Grant started pursuing this strategy of attrition and putting Petersburg under siege for the next nine months. So he led these key battles and key victories. Again, they were pretty costly. A lot of men died, but he really wanted to start chipping away at the southern uh, controlled land and cities. And so that's when he put Petersburg under siege for nine months. Again, heavy Union casualties in all these battles. Okay, Sherman took Atlanta by outmaneuvering Confederate forces in September of that year. And this is when 60,000 Union troops began the famous, what they call, March to the Sea. Now, the article that I read kind of skipped over, like, what the March to the Sea was. So I looked up in a different article that I will link below what this March to the Sea entailed. So it occurred November 15th through December 21st, 1864, so right at the tail end of the year, and it was the most destructive campaign against the civilian population during the entire Civil War. So the 60,000 men marched across Georgia to the Atlantic to prove that the Confederate population, um, that its government could not protect the people, basically. So... The idea was to change the base from Atlanta to Savannah, and they were going to march all of that way, and so there were preparations made to change the base to Savannah. And Lincoln was worried at this point that any sort of very drastic campaign would make him possibly lose the election if it went sideways or there was not good public opinion about this campaign. And so Lincoln actually made... Um, Sherman delay this until after election day. So that's why it happened on 
um, November 15th. It was after election day. Okay, so here's a synopsis or a little part of the article that I'm just going to read. It says, after General John Bell Hood abandoned Atlanta, he moved the Confederate Army of Tennessee outside the city to recuperate from the previous campaign. In early October, he began a raid toward Chattanooga, Tennessee in an effort to draw Sherman back over ground. Oh, sorry. In an effort to draw Sherman back over ground the two sides had fought for since May. But instead of tempting Sherman to battle, Hood turned his army west and marched into Alabama, abandoning Georgia to Union forces. Apparently, Hood hoped that if he invaded Tennessee, Sherman would be forced to follow. However, he had anticipated the strategy and sent Major General George H. Thomas to Nashville to deal with Hood. With Georgia cleared of Confederate Army, Sherman, facing only scattered cavalry, was free to move south. So we can see that Sherman is a very, very good military strategist. He was outmaneuvering the Confederacy or the Confederate uh, Army multiple times. And he just knew the priority of like what would actually try to end the war sooner. The purpose of this campaign was to end the war sooner prove to the southern people that the confederate government was not going to protect them and they would be more inclined to rejoin the union so some details of the march there were 60,000 men they were split in half into two wings they always marched about 20 to 40 miles apart now initially the right wing headed for macon the left headed for augusta but then they turned they bypassed both cities and then they both started heading for the state capital at mill Milledgeville. Now, the only real opposition, like it said, was scattered cavalry, and there were only about 8,000 people. Now, remember, 60,000 people are in the Union Army that are marching, so it was not going to be a good battle for the Confederate Army. Along the way, Sherman's army had foragers that raided farms and plantations and, like, destroyed um, food sources and things like that. So, I mean, once the Confederate army realized that there is no way that they're going to beat this whole huge army, the capital just surrendered peacefully on November 23rd. Now, there was a very controversial event that involved, it says it involved contrabands, self-emancipated individuals who followed the liberating armies. At Ebenezer Creek on December 9th, Jefferson C. Davis removed the pontoon bridge before enslaved people could cross. Frightened men, women, and children plunged into the deep water, and many drowned in an attempt to reach safety. After the march, Davis was soundly criticized by the northern press, but Sherman backed his commander by pointing out that Davis had done what was militarily necessary. Okay, so a few things to note here. First of all, Jefferson C. Davis, when I first read this, it was very confusing because the president of the Confederate uh, nation is also named Jefferson Davis, but that's why they um, they specified it's Jefferson C. Davis. He was actually a commander on the Union side under Sherman. So another thing to note here is that even though Sherman and Davis were fighting for the North, the Northern press criticized them for this action. That is... An important note because now it feels like no news wants to criticize their own side. Like Republican media tends to not criticize Republican officials and then Democrats won't criticize Democrats. This is when news was still like they're going to criticize their own side. 
I don't know, you know, how good the defense was that it was militarily necessary, but this was one of the more controversial um, events of the, the march. Okay, so then after Fort McAllister fell, Sherman was going to siege Savannah. So the Confederate Lieutenant General Hardy realized he was outnumbered and ordered a retreat of their men. And so Sherman took the, the city, notified Lincoln that Savannah had fallen, and then offered Savannah and its 25,000 bales of cotton to Lincoln as a Christmas present. So they're really taking over like the majority of Georgia and very scary for the Southerners who thought that the Confederate army would really help. So this says Sherman and, and men, uh, Sherman and his men had destroyed all sources of food and forage and left a hungry and demoralized people who had thought the Confederate army would be able to protect them on the home front. So once people in Lee's army, who is on the Confederate side, heard of all the hardships in this march, the hardships for the women and children, there were a lot of desertions in Lee's army in Virginia. They tried to come back to help, you know, their families get food and water and things like that. So that is also really not helping the Confederate army to have desertions. I think they, I think part of the desertions were to help, but from the whole point of the campaign and they really emphasized the need to instill in Southerners that like the Confederate army was not going to protect them. I think a lot of the men realized that the Confederate army was also not going to protect them. And so then they deserted and they kind of didn't believe in the cause as much. Okay, Columbia and Charleston fell to Sherman's men by mid-February, and Sherman handed supreme command over to Lee. Or sorry, not Sherman, but the Confederate army handed supreme command over to Lee with the Confederate war effort on its last legs. So they were saying how delayed this was. When I remember back to Confederate, you know, or uh, Civil War history, I had always thought that Lee was always the head guy in charge of the army because he's like so talked about and stuff. But he actually only got supreme command over the army very, very late in the war. Like as they were, pr they had pretty much lost already. So then um, Sherman kept moving and going into North Carolina. He captured Fayetteville, Bentonville, Goldsboro, and Raleigh by mid-April. And in a very last-ditch effort, Lee's forces attacked and captured Fort Stedman on March 25th of 1865. So they were feeling pretty good, but the army was absolutely exhausted from all of these campaigns. And, um, you know, they, they had gone through a lot. There had been a lot of losses so they were exhausted and there was an immediate counterattack by the Union that reversed the victory and on April 2nd and 3rd, Lee's forces ended up evacuating Richmond. So all through the next week, Grant and Meade ended up pursuing the Confederate forces all along the Appomattox River, I'm pretty sure is how you say it, and it basically left them nowhere to escape. They were on the coast, there was nowhere to run. And Lee just had to surrender. So Grant accepted Lee's surrender at that courthouse on April 9th. And then, so, so we're right on the edge of a victory for the Union and the end of the war. But that is when the actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln 
Lincoln was at Ford Cedar, about to watch a play in Washington on April 14th, and he was shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth. Um, if you have not read Killing Lincoln um, by Bill O'Reilly, I would highly recommend it. It is a very good book that goes through that whole scene. So um, it's a good read for sure. Okay. Sherman received Johnston's surrender at Durham Station, North Carolina on April 26th. And that basically ended the world or the Civil War. I almost said World War. Okay, so now we got to talk about Reconstruction because naturally it is going to be a long process. Like they just went to war. It was a four-year war. There's a lot of bitter feelings at the end of that, especially for the South. They feel like they have their slaves stolen away from them. Their economy is in shambles. Like, and they just lost war on top of that. So I would imagine that the Southern sentiment was even more bitter than before the war. Now, one hotly debated issue during the Reconstruction era was the rights was the right to vote specifically for black men and former confederate men to vote now here's what one article says about the reconstruction period as a whole it says traditionally portrayed by historians as a sordid time when vindictive radical republicans fastened black supremacy upon the defeated confederacy construction has uh, reconstruction has lately been viewed more sympathetically as a laudable experiment in interracial democracy it was also a time when the entire nation but especially the south was forced to come to grips with the legacy of slavery and the consequences of emancipation okay so in the south politically mobilized black community joined with white allies to bring the republican party to power so this is like in the first just couple years after the civil war ended so it's 1865 to 1867 in what was known as the presidential reconstruction period now we have to back up just a little bit here so in 1863 lincoln had announced what was called the 10 percent plan what the 10 percent plan was is it it was a um opportunity offered by lincoln to pardon all southerners except for confederate leaders who took an oath affirming their loyalty to the union and support for emancipation Now, it's called the 10% um, plan because only 10% of the voters had to take the oath in order for them to establish a new state government in whatever state they were in. It was an attempt not to, like, you know, completely overthrow things, but it was an attempt to weaken the Confederacy by getting a portion of the population to outwardly take an oath to the Union. It was only implemented in some areas and none of the new governments were officially recognized by Congress because it was still in the middle of the war. So, you know, I don't know how effective it was, but that was one of the plans put in place um, in 1863. Now, there was kind of a response to that where people wanted to be harsher with the South. So there was something called the Wade Davis Bill. And what this was is it was proposed to delay the formation of the new Southern governments until the majority of voters had taken a loyalty oath. So instead of 10%, it would have to be over 50%. It was enacted by Congress in 1864 because they really wanted to kind of crack down on the South, but it was actually pocket vetoed by Lincoln. Okay, so some Republicans were already convinced that equal rights for the former slaves must accompany the South's readmission into the Union. In his last speech in April 1865, Lincoln himself expressed the view that some Southern blacks, the the, quote, very intelligent and those who had served in the Union Army ought to enjoy the right to vote. 
Okay. So, as we have reviewed, Lincoln was killed in 1865. So, once he died, Johnson became the president, also in 1865. And he is what he ushered in this presidential reconstruction period from 1865 to 1867, as I mentioned. So he offered to pardon all Southern whites except for Confederate leaders and wealthy planters, even though most of those wealthy planters ended up getting individual pardons. So it wasn't like they were really getting punished for the vast majority of them. This is where they restored, um, they restored all of their political rights and property except for slaves. Um, to those southern planters and any of the southern whites. So any property that they had before that was seized by the federal government, they were given back. So in order to establish a new state government, they must abolish slavery, repudiate succession, and abrogate the Confederate debt. Other than those three requirements, there was really no requirements to join as a southern state or establish a new government as I understand, which meant that the South could really just kind of try to get around the fact that slavery was illegal and still implement a lot of things to take control of the black population and get them essentially to do their work. So Southern states responded to these requirements, these very bare minimum requirements by enacting something called the Black Codes. Those were laws that required blacks to signed yearly labor contracts, and they designated unemployed blacks as vagrants, and they could be hired out to white landowners. So this was really just another way to seek, you know, the South was really looking to reestablish the plantation lifestyle and discipline, and so they couldn't have slaves, but they could have everything kind of but slaves. Like, they, they introduced these black codes in order to have a legal way of kind of reestablishing the plantation lifestyle. Naturally, the blacks in the South strongly resisted the black codes because it was definitely not in their best interest. And it said the inability of South white leaders um, undermined Northern support for Johnson's policies. So Johnson put in place these policies and they clearly were not working. The North wanted many, many more rights, especially the right to vote to black Americans and Johnson Johnson left these or put in place these policies that left the door wide open for southern uh, Democrats really southern like wealthy planters to still mistreat um, you know African Americans in the south okay when Congress assembled in 1865 in December radical Republicans called for the abrogation of the Johnson government and the establishment of new ones based on equality before the law and manhood suffrage. But the more numerous moderate Republicans hoped to work with Johnson while modifying his program. So even in the Republican Party, they were split on exactly how to deal with the bad legislation. Some of them wanted to overthrow Johnson and some of them wanted to work with him. Congress refused to seat the congressmen and senators elected from southern states and in early 1866 passed and sent to Johnson the Freedmen's Bureau and Civil Rights Bills. The first extended the life of an agency Congress had a, wait, hold on. The first extended the life of an agency Congress had created in 1865 to oversee the transition from slavery to freedom. The second defined all persons born in the United States as national citizens who were to enjoy equality before the law. 
But Johnson really believed in states' rights and was not really on the side of like blacks having equality. And so he basically just rejected these bills. The vetoes from, you know, they passed the bills and then Johnson vetoed them. It caused a huge rupture, this article said, between the president and his Congress. So there is a way in, if the president vetoes a bill for the bill to still be passed, which is like it requires this overwhelming majority by the Congress and it can overstep a president's veto. This was the first piece of the first major piece of legislation in American history to become law over a president's veto was the Civil Rights Act. So it was approved. The 14th Amendment was also approved, the birthright citizenship and equal protection of the laws. Now it says, traditionally citizens' rights had been delineated and protected by the states. Now Congress provided that the federal government guarantee all Americans equality before the law, regardless of race against state violation. Yet Republican egalitarianism had its limits. Women's rights advocates insisted without success that the time had come to eliminate gender as well as race as a ground for legal distinctions uh, among Americans. So they weren't quite there yet on the matter of gender, but the 14th Amendment protected um, any discrimination against uh, based on race. So the northern states refused Johnson's policies and the southern states rejected the 14th Amendment. Things were going terribly. No one could get like things passed and it was just all kind of in disarray. So basically starting in 1867, construction just or reconstruction just had to start new. It had to start fresh. So in 1867, there was this set of um, acts that were kind of put together and passed called the Reconstruction Acts of 1867. What it did is it divided the South into five military districts. It provided for the establishment of new governments only based on manhood suffrage. And it was a period of radical reconstruction, they called it. That lasts until 1877, which is like when really the full reconstruction period ended in 1877. Now it says, by 1870, Congress recognized new governments controlled by the Republican Party in all former Confederate states. So from the period of 1865 to 1870, that is when these new governments were being formed. They made their own state constitutions. They submitted them. Um, and then the, the, you know, the Union would recognize the new state governments as you know, they have re-entered the Union. Um, Georgia, I think, was the last one to rejoin as we went over in the last podcast episode about the history of Georgia. That happened in 1870. Now, it talks about different types of Southern Republicans that kind of all had a, a play here in the South because they were all under Republican control because that was the side that won the Civil War. So there were three types of Southern Republicans. One was called the Carpetbaggers. Those were recent arrivals from the North. They were former Union soldiers, teachers. A lot of them came like before 1867, it said. And so they were kind of transplants from the North. There were also Scalawags, which were native born white Republicans. They were non-slaveholding uh, small farmers, most of them. They were loyal to the Union during the war, and they saw the Republican Party as the means of keeping the rebels from regaining power. So they were kind of willing to do anything. They were willing to work with um, blacks, 
you know, to the end of not having these rich white planters being in control again. So they sided with the Union, but they were technically in the South, and most were white, non-slaveholding, white, non-slaveholding small farmers. Then the majority of Southern Republicans were freed uh, black men, well, men and women, but women can vote. So the votes came from black men who were on the side of the Republicans. They called for complete civil and political rights, and they wanted to eliminate the racial caste system. Now, a number of those black politicians came into power during this time um, in the Republican Party, and as you can imagine, this created a lot of hostility from Reconstruction opponents. There were still the same like rich white planters in the South that did not want anyone who was black coming into a position of power, and there was a pretty high number of black politicians that were coming into power in the South, and so it, you know, it turned very hostile. Now, this snippet from this article said, serving an expanded citizenry and embracing a new definition of public responsibility, Reconstruction governments established the South's first state-funded public school systems, adopted measures designed to strengthen the bargaining power of plantation laborers, and made taxation more equitable, and outlawed racial discrimination in public transportation accommodations. They also embarked on a vicious programs of economic development offering lavish aid to railroads and other enterprises in the hope of creating a new South whose economic expansion would benefit black and white alike. But the program of railroad and spawn, the program of railroad aid spawned corruption and rising taxes, alienating increasing numbers of white voters. So they tried all these systems, try to get it more equal kind of part of it went off the rails. Part of it worked. Um, but at this point now like that blacks were not enslaved or separated from family members they said there was a this a strong culture of like solidifying family ties and creating independent religious institutions kind of creating a more solid uh footing i guess because they were now allowed to as free men and women and not slaves and so this was a very solidifying time for like family ties in the black culture Okay, President Johnson, the summer of 1865, ordered land in federal hands to be returned to the former owners. So I guess this is going back a little bit, but this is where the 40 acres and a mule that we mentioned last Civil War podcast is um, like, this is where that comes from. So they were promised 40 acres and a mule. And then instead of actually following through with that, President Johnson just gave back all the land to the white former owners who owned slaves. Okay, at this time, the KKK started targeting local Republican leaders for beatings and assassination. Anyone who assisted former slaves became targets. Blacks who asserted their rights became targets. And the Klan really decimated a lot of Republican organizations in many localities, this says. The new Southern governments looked to Washington for assistance because they're like, listen, the Klan is taking over a lot here. The people that were in charge for the most part wanted this change. They wanted to be loyal to the Union. And then groups like the KKK, you know, were violent and trying to overthrow a lot of these new governments. So in 1869, Republicans were in control of all three 
branches of the federal government. Johnson was impeached in 1868. The reason was for an apparent violation of the new Tenure of Office Act. So what he was trying to do was he was trying to remove the Secretary of War, Edmund M. Stanton, he was trying to get him kicked out of office. Well, that's a violation of this new act. And so Johnson was impeached. Now, I think in a very roundabout way, like this is a, real, a minor thing, you know? And the real reason I think that they were impeaching him was because his complete mishandling of the Reconstruction period. But that a mishandling of like the Reconstruction period is not a, an impeachable offense. And so they found this apparent violation of this new law in order to actually get him impeached. Senate failed to remove him from office, but it was by a single vote, which is insane. Like he almost got kicked out of office. So, but it's gonna be, it's pretty easy to tell, I guess, from all of this, like the impeachment, uh, people trying to overthrow him, <laughs> like all of that, it wasn't going well for Johnson. And that fall, Grant was elected president, Ulysses S. Grant. At that time, the 15th Amendment was also passed. It prohibited states from restricting the franchise because of race. And then they enacted a series of enforcement acts authorizing national action to suppress political violence. Okay, I am back. I had to take a quick, <laughs> break actually to go run and do our pre-drywall walkthrough for our new house so there is a little bit of a gap between these last segments but um let's get back to reconstruction history so in 1871 the um current administration launched a legal and military offensive that destroyed the clan so grant was very anti the kkk and so he launched this whole like military campaign to destroy the clan that Everyone liked Grant way more than Johnson or the majority of people, so he was reelected in 1872. And then here's where kind of um, Reconstruction fizzles out a little bit, so I'm just going to read some passages from this article because it described it very well. It said, Nonetheless, Reconstruction soon began to wane. During the 1870s, many Republicans retreated from both the racial egalitarianism and the broad definition of federal power spawned by the Civil War. So, there was a large inflation of the federal government during Reconstruction because it really said that federal government in some ways had more power than the states. So classic like Republicans, there's a, only a certain point where they're going to allow that and they still do like states' rights. It said Southern corruption and instability... Um, Southern corruption and instability, Reconstructionist critics argued, stem from the exclusion of the region's best men, white planters, from power. As the Northern Republican Party became more conservative, the Northern thought, the Northern thought became imbued with social Darwinism, the belief that the distribution of power and resources within society reflected a natural process of evolution, which government should not and could not alter. Reconstruction came to symbolize both misgovernment and, mis and a misguided attempt to use national power to uplift the lower classes of society. Reflecting the shifting mood, a series of Supreme Court decisions, beginning with the slaughterhouse cases in 1873, severely limited the scope of Reconstruction laws and constitutional amendments. Okay, so this is where, like, the Republican Party is saying, you know, that, yeah, basically that there's not... They don't want a huge, huge role in the federal government. 
1876, only South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana remained under Republican control. The remaining Southern states had been, quote, redeemed by white Democrats. The outcome of that year's presidential election between Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Samuel J. Tilden hinged on the disputed returns from these states. Complex negotiations between Southern political leaders and representatives of Hayes resulted in the bargain of 1877. Hayes would recognize Democratic control of the remaining Southern states, and Democrats would not block the certification of his election by Congress. So that's interesting. Um, Hayes was inaugurated, federal troops returned to their barracks, and Reconstruction defined as an era when the federal government accepted the responsibility for protecting the rights of the former slaves came to an end. So, yes, the Reconstruction period, because I was wondering how they define the end of Reconstruction, you know, because it seems like a gradual thing. It actually wasn't that gradual because of this bargain of 1877. That is why the end date of Reconstruction is known as 1877 definitively because that is when Hayes recognized um, democratic control of the remaining southern states. Okay, by the turn of the century, a new racial system had been put in place in the South, resting on the disenfranchisement of black voters, a rigid system of racial segregation, the relegation of African Americans to low-wage agricultural and domestic employment, and legal and extra-legal violence to punish those who challenged the new order. The North acquiesced in the new racial order. Nonetheless, while flagrantly violated, the Reconstruction Amendments remained embedded in the Constitution, sleeping giants to be awakened by the efforts of subsequent generations to redeem the promise of genuine freedom for descendants of slavery. Not until the 1960s, however, during the Civil Rights Revolution, sometimes called the Second Reconstruction, would the nation again tempt, attempt to come to terms with the political and social agenda of Reconstruction. So those Reconstruction legislative bills and things did stay in the Constitution and they were, you know, they called them in here sleeping giants to be awakened in the civil rights era. So a lot of this was re-called upon during um, the civil rights movement, but like when they were trying to get Jim Crow laws illegal, to be made illegal. So that is the history of the Civil War. That's the history of Reconstruction. Obviously, that's pretty high level. There's a lot more Civil War history and the nitty gritty details. I found this website where there was a database of Civil War events and there were literally like 2,800 or something events on there. So I could not go through all those. But I hope you like the... Uh, podcast, the history, and we will definitely go into another podcast about like the political parties, how they shifted, who's, who's who, and how all of that, like the history of the political parties and where they are today. So be on the lookout for that one in the near future. That's all I have for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to leave a review and um, like five stars on Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the episode. And I will see you on Thursday for the next History of a State. I will see you then. Bye, everyone.